John chapter 18. We're going to cover a larger section this morning as it's um, much of its narrative. We're, we're looking at verses 12 through 27 this morning. John 18, verses 12 through 27. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter, Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now the disciple who was known to the high priest, and now that was the disciple who was known to the high priest, and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are, you're not also one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers who had made, the, made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore he said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Where we are at in John 18 is right there in the final hours in the life of Christ. He was there in the, in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, and it was there in which he prayed. Um, prayed and in, in even just in anguish with, with sweating drops of, of, of blood and, and, and being in a place of asking his disciples to pray with him. And, and we see that the disciples fell asleep over and over again, and Jesus is there praying, knowing that the time of his departure, the time of the cross is, is, is at hand. And so he's there, and... and Judas comes and he betrays Christ with a kiss. Peter comes and chops off Malchus's ear and Jesus takes the ear and puts it right back onto Malchus again and heals him, knowing that it is time for him to go to the cross. And so from that point, we come to verse 12, where there's this detachment of troops and the captain and, and the officers of the Jews arresting Jesus, and it says, and they bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And so you see what's taking place here. He's been arrested. They take him and they, they bind his hands together. And it says they led him away. 
It's a picture that's given us in, in Isaiah 53 where it tells us that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Led. They led him away. They're not dragging him to this place. They lead him away to the place where he's going as a lamb to the slaughter. It's interesting because as you look at what's taking place at this particular point in the life of Christ and all through his life, but specifically as we look here, we see things that are occurring that have all been prophesied beforehand and pictures have been created in Scripture of all that is about to occur. Um, when, with the whole sacrificial system of a lamb without spot or blemish that's to be taken and to be sacrificed and to be done at this particular time, the, the lamb would be brought to the high priest first. And what we find here is is that taking place. He's being brought to the high priest. Um, Annas was the high priest, and now his son-in-law Caiaphas is the high priest. People would have still recognized Annas as the high priest because once you're a high priest, you're a high priest for life, and, and, and the Romans would have encouraged Caiaphas to, to possibly become the priest, and people probably still recognize Annas as the priest. And so this is what we see taking place here. Um, even in Acts chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. It refers to these people as the high priest, even though that they weren't currently in that position. And so they're brought before the high priest. Um, in Leviticus chapter 17, it, it talks about the children of Israel bringing their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, and they were to bring them to the Lord and bring them to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And we see just a picture of that taking place. The first place that he goes to is to the priest. He would have gone through the sheep gate, and the sheep gate it was near the temple, an area where the sacrificial animals would have passed through, going there through the, the area of, of Kedron, and, and, and here is the Lamb of God going in through the sheep gate, with the high, seeing the high priest and then continuing on. And so here he is. He tells us that he's brought before Annas first. We're looking, we're looking at this trial that is about to take place. Now the judicial system within Israel was very, was very specific. Um, they had incredible details that were given, incredible and very clear requirements that were given as far as how the judicial system was to work. We look at our judicial system here in the United States, and there's things that we would expect. We would expect a speedy trial. We would, we would ex- expect to be found innocent until proven guilty. There's things that we expect to have, um, to have a jury amongst our peers. These are things that we would expect. Likewise, within Israel, you have very specific things that, that were mandated by the law. The only court that was authorized to, to hear a case of capital, capital punishment was the great Sanhedrin, and it was made up of 71 different members. And so Jesus, in whom they want to put to death, would have to go before the Sanhedrin, these 71 people. There were 23 priests, 23 scribes, 23 elders, and then two presiding officers. And so this is how the Sanhedrin was made up, and this is who Jesus was to go before priests, the scribes, the elders. If you remember in Matthew 16 and verse 21, it tells us that that from this particular time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the, what, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and that he'd be killed. 
And so here he is before the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The court had rules as far as it had to to meet during daylight hours. Between the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. And an arrest was not to be conducted during night hours. So in the Mishnah it tells us, quote, Let a capital offense be tried during the day, but suspended at night. Part of the law. Had to be done during the day. Could not take place at night. Well, what's taking place here is he's being arrested at night and he is being tried at night, in the middle of the night. The point being is they want him dead. They are going against all of their laws. They're going against everything that they have known as far as this is the way that it's supposed to be. They want him dead. They come to him. We saw in... Um, in Earlier in last last week in John eighteen three, where they came with their lanterns and their torches and their weapons. Why did they come with their lanterns? Because it's nighttime. They're there in the middle of the night. The witnesses had to be in agreement, and they had to have a full knowledge of every detail. It wasn't that they could just say, "Well, this is just all that I know." They had to know, and the charges had to come from the particular witnesses. Yet what we find is the witnesses were not united together. They didn't have the same story. In Jewish law, if, if that was the case, the whole, the whole thing was to be thrown out. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 56, it says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days he'll build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And so what we find amongst the witnesses is they bring witnesses and they are not in agreement at all about what has occurred. The case should have been thrown out at that point. There had to be at least 37 of the 71 judges for the accused person to be found guilty. And if the decision was unanimous, the case had to be thrown out because it's thought that if it's unanimous... It was based on an emotional decision and a mob mentality rather than the facts. Um, Opposite a little bit of what we have in our culture, right? We have, you know, a unanimous decision is a good decision as far as, like, this person's guilty. The judges were to be their advocates. The judges were to be there to ask the questions and to be there to hopefully keep someone from being put to death. And so if all 71 people were saying this person's guilty, they'd say, Throw the case out. Obviously, there's a mob mentality. Obviously, they're doing this on an emotional basis. There's no warrant for this, this death. We find in, in, in Mark 14 and verse 64, um, it tells us that, that they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So not only that, but the sentence could not be pronounced on the same day as the conviction. Because the law required the court members to go home and to consider all the details overnight. And so these 71 men were supposed to go home, think about the case, think about all the details of the case, so that they could come back the next day, hear anything else that had been thought of, to make sure that they never put someone to death in an inappropriate way. Not only was Jesus tried at night and and that being illegal, but 
He was also tried on the night before the Sabbath, which was also illegal because it made it so they couldn't come back the next day. It had to be that they came back the next day. And on top of that, it was completed. All of it was done within less than a 24-hour period, which was illegal. All of it was illegal. The whole case in which it was done was done in a way that was illegal. And in verse 14, it says, Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So that's the description that we find here in, in, in John 18, 14. This is who Caiaphas is. He's not a good guy. When he says that one man should die for the people, he's not saying, like, this is, this is one man that should die for the sins of all the people. And yet, even in saying that, he's prophesying of what is about ready to occur. We know what he meant in John chapter 11. It tells us that there's the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're gathered together saying, what do we do with him? What do we do with Jesus? He does many works and many signs. If, if we leave him alone, everyone's going to believe in him. The Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. And then it tells us Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. And it tells us from this point on, they plotted how to put him to death. Here's Caiaphas saying, he is messing up everything for us. He's doing all of these miracles. He's doing all of these signs. He's speaking like nobody has ever spoken before. And people are following him. They're believing in him. If we don't put him to death, it's going to ruin everything for us. He overturned our tables. These tables that make it so that we get to tell people, your sacrifice isn't good enough. You need to go and buy one of our sacrifices. He, he's, he's hitting our pocketbooks. He's doing stuff to make it so that he's showing people our sin. He called us whitewashed sepulchers. He says that we're clean on the outside, but inside we're full of dead men's bones. He's doing stuff that nobody else does. No one talks about us like this. He's ruining everything. This one man should die for the sake of the whole nation. We want to be able to keep our positions. We want to be able to keep our positions within the religious sects as well as within the government. If he comes and people continue to believe in him, it's going to ruin everything for us. And so this is how John describes Caiaphas here. In verse 15, it says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Um, it's interesting because we're going through our text, and, and you're, you're, you're in the midst of the trial. You're mixed in the midst of hearing about Annas and Caiaphas and all that is occurring. And yet the Holy Spirit inspires John to insert Peter here. It seems a little bit out of place as far as, okay, now you've stopped the story. We're hearing about Peter now. Then you're going to continue on with the story. And then you're going to talk about Peter again. And so you look at this and you think, what is occurring here? I think that John, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is showing who it is that Jesus is dying for. We look and we see the trial occurring. And then it talks about Simon Peter. And he's following, he's following Jesus just to see what is going to happen. Matthew tells us that Peter followed him at a distance to see the end. What's going to take place at a distance? He, he's at a place where this is Peter, 
the one that is known historically as being a large man, one that's there and thinking, I, I need to protect him. If everybody leaves you, Christ, it won't be me. I'll take my sword out. I'll die for you. I'll chop off Malchus's ear. I'll, I'll do this. And so he's, he's now following from a distance. It tells us that Peter stood at the door outside. And the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. It's a servant girl who kept the door. And she says to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And his response is, I am not. It's important as we look at this because here the Holy Spirit inspires John to write this because big, strong Peter, even if I have to die for you, I will not depart from you. I will not leave you. Now, Jesus has told him, before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. And he's saying, never. That will not happen. And the Holy Spirit inspires John to write, there's a servant girl. It's a girl. It's a young girl. It's a young servant. And she comes to him saying, aren't you one of the ones that followed Christ? This isn't that that Peter has a a sword to his neck. It's not a whole militia of, of soldiers. It's a little girl. Aren't you one of them? No. He's afraid. Not only is he afraid, but he's very quick to deny Christ. Um, it's important that we take a moment just to think about Peter here. The trial's taking place. Here's Peter saying, I'm going to follow at a distance. And, and, and I think to some degree it's, it's, it's praiseworthy as far as looking at, looking at Peter and seeing him in a place of, I'm, I'm going to follow. I'll follow. <laughs> um, and so as we go on, we look and we see, we see here that in verse 16, let's see, or verse 17, he responds by saying, I am not. Then in verse 18, if you look there with me for a moment. Now the servant and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Um, It's cold. Peter's in a place of being here, seeing all that's occurring, and... I see someone that's just in a place of just feeding his flesh for all that it's worth. You, you remember that Israel is, is, is a place where the climate is almost the exact climate that we find here in California. Um, if you go to Israel, you'll see similar vegetation, similar fruit that's grown there. It's, it's almost exactly what you would find here in California. Rarely in California are we at a place where you're going to freeze to death, especially at the, this particular time of, of Passover. And he's cold, warming his hands at the enemy's fire. Being there in a place of, 
I want to be there near Jesus, but I'm cold. And I'm going to be here near the enemy. I've already denied Christ once, but I'm going to stay here by this fire. Also noteworthy, just as a side note, is it makes it more intense what was taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane just a little bit earlier. If Peter's cold here as he's by the, the fire and Jesus is being accused, it was just a very short time previously where Jesus was sweating great drops of blood. You think of the intensity that Christ was going through prior to the cross. Well, now Peter's here and he's there warming himself at these coals. And the high priest in verse 19 asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. This was also illegal with the Jewish judiciary system. A person accused was never to testify against themselves. The witnesses were to witness against them and, and and Jesus had the right to remain silent. You couldn't use someone's own words as far as them being those that testify against himself. And we have something very similar in our country. So the greatest problem these people had is that they didn't have a proper charge against Christ. So they come and they arrest him. They bind him. And now they're trying to even find a reason to arrest him. The high priest also was to remain silent. In any kind of judicial trial, the high priest was to remain silent throughout the whole thing and then to give his opinion at the very end. Here the high priest is there and he's accusing Jesus and speaking to Jesus and demanding things from Jesus. Also something that never would have taken place in any other trials. So Jesus answers him and says, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Jesus isn't being rude here. He's saying, I have a right to not testify at this particular point. You bring the witnesses against me. They're everywhere. They've all heard what I've said. Bring them. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Are you going to answer the high priest like that as they strike him in the face? Jesus answers and says, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, it's interesting because we're looking at this particular situation of the arrest. And you get the idea that they don't care what Jesus has said. They don't care what Jesus has done. They're at a place of not caring about whether the trial's done properly. They don't care whether they're obeying the law. They don't care whether it's been done at night. They don't care whether it's been a unanimous decision. They don't care about any of these things. They just want to put him to death as quickly as they possibly can. Mark gives us a little bit more of the account as he goes to Caiaphas. Let me just read this for you. 
the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, this is in Mark 14, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and, and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his, his clothes and said, What further need do I have of, of, of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. So that's what takes place when he goes to Caiaphas. The trial's not fair. The trial's not right. All that is occurring would go against everything that they had set up as far as within their judiciary system. They don't want to hear. They don't want to know. They just want to crucify him. What if he were to give them the facts? What if he had a proper trial? What would have happened if he would have been there and said, can I give the reasons the next day to be able to tell you why these things are false? Or when I said, I am, when I said, I am the Christ, when I said that I am the one that will come in the clouds, when I said, this temple will be destroyed and in three days it will be rebuilt. I'm talking about my body who is going to be, who's going to be killed and in three days I'll rise again from the dead. What if he was able to go through and say, here is the evidence to all these things? I think of people who live today who are so quick to dismiss Christ. So quick to say, I don't believe in him. I don't believe in him. I don't want to follow him. I don't even want him in my mind. When they've never even looked into, is it true? Jesus could have been there and said, you just struck me on the cheek. Micah 5.1 tells us that the troops would gather and they would seize him and they would strike the judge of Israel, on the cheek. What you just did was the fulfillment of Micah chapter 1. I was born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I was born of a virgin, Isaiah 14. I was born in the house of David, 2 Samuel 7, 12, and Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. It was said there would be a forerunner that would come and proclaim the day of the Lord, according to Malachi 3, verse 1. John the Baptist was my forerunner. Isaiah 35 tells us that the eyes of the blind would be open, and the ears of the deaf would be unstopped, and the lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing, and the water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. These things have taken place. I'll bring people to you who were blind and I made their eyes open. I'll bring people to you who were deaf and I made it so they could hear. I'll bring people to you who are lame. They came on a cot. They came in their bed. 
and I made them able to walk. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, and he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our God, of our God, to comfort all who mourn. I did that. I did that. Zechariah tells us that, that I would come, the king would come, and he would be lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I did that. Psalm 41, verse 9, tells us that I'd be betrayed by a friend who ate my bread, and he's lifted up his heel against me. That was Judas. That took place this last night. Zechariah eleven twelve says that Judas would betray that this person would betray me for 30 pieces of silver. How many pieces of silver did you give Judas? And they would reply, 30. It would have just been radical to be there, to be able to see all of this take place as far as, here is the proof. This is what has occurred. This was spoken thousands of years before, and this is how it happened. And then, this is just scratching the surface looking at the whole sacrificial system, looking at the details of what a crucifixion would look like, looking at the details of how the trial would occur and what would take place. There are so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of details that are given of the life of Christ and his death and resurrection. But what about for us? I mean, as much as the Sanhedrin would have had to be able to look at and say, this is all that has occurred. This is all that it said hundreds or even thousands of years ago that would occur. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Most High. If he were to present his case to them, there would be just incredible evidence. But yet they wanted to hear none of it. But how many people live today that don't want to hear any of it. And there's even more for us. We're able to go through and to see the way in which he died and to find incredible details given as far as casting lots for his clothing or him him being whipped and by his stripes were healed or him being offered vinegar and gall. And you could go through and just look at all of them and, and, and the details... His hands pierced. The incredible details of the crucifixion. And, and you need to know that the details of the crucifixion were written before crucifixion had ever even been invented. Hundreds of years before it had been invented. It tells us that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And he was in fact buried in a rich man's tomb. The details of, of, of the time in which Jesus would die and, and coming down to the very day in which he would, he would die as you go through and look at the prophecies and it, hand, it happened exactly as he had said. The details that are given are just overwhelming. And yet how many people gnash their teeth at him and say, crucify him. I want nothing to do with him. 
They never want to hear. They never want to listen. And yet you can go through and do a proper hearing and listen to all the evidence and find it to be overwhelming. The problem isn't the amount of evidence that there is. The problem is the state of the heart of man. The Bible tells us that they love darkness rather than the light. They're haters of God. They don't seek after him. They don't desire him. It's not about the evidence. It's about the heart. But I thank the Lord that he changes hearts. And he takes the scales off of eyes. He draws us unto himself and he gives us his word to give us just incredible evidence of the truths of scripture. They didn't want anything to do with it. But how about us here this morning? Are you convinced that Jesus is the Christ? I mean, he even said, part of their their accusation is, you said that you would destroy this temple and raise it in three days. And he was talking about his body and he died. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to over 500 people at one time. Even to the place where the disciples and countless other people that followed him died for their faith in him. They died for their faith in him. You might be here thinking, well, why would he let them die? If he's God, why would he not just keep them from dying? They went and took the gospel all over the world. They died brutal deaths for the sake of Christ. But part of him having them die is just great evidence that they believed. They believed what they saw. There comes a point where you won't continue a false story if it's coming to the place of you're going to die or your wife's going to be killed. There comes a point where you're going to say, okay, 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 and it was, all, it was all a hoax. Just let me go. That didn't happen with the disciples. They followed him and they followed him and they followed him to different continents, countries all over the world, and they all died or were martyred, or suffered incredible tribulation for the sake of their faith. We come back to Peter in verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, and therefore they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him who, whose ear Peter cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Aren't you the one that cut off my cousin Malchus's ear? You look just like that guy. And he said again, I am not. And immediately the rooster crowed. We're told in another account that at that particular point, Peter looked and saw the face of Christ when that rooster and he went and wept bitterly. I think part of the, the best part of this being inserted here into John chapter 18, it is such a demonstration of the grace of God this morning to us. You may be here this morning thinking like, you have no idea what I've done. God couldn't forgive me of what I've done. You have no idea what I've done. 
Here's Peter, the one who's followed Christ for these three years. Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And he denies Christ three times. Even as Jesus is about to go to the cross, Jesus makes eye contact with him as the rooster crows. And yet the incredible grace of God. Tell them that he's risen from the dead. Go and tell the disciples and Peter, is what it said. And Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. Jesus coming to him and restoring him and using him in just incredible ways within the church. The grace of God. The Bible tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Here's a story inserted into this horrible trial situation in which Jesus is being falsely accused and given a, a terrible trial. And here's the one who, who is a part of that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Peter. Denying Jesus three times. And yet, you find just a flood of grace coming towards Peter. He's forgiven. He has an inheritance forever in heaven. He'll spend eternity with Christ. He was used in incredible ways to minister to the church. Incredible ways for the sake of the gospel. And this was a man of great, great sin. Used in great great ways because we serve a God of great, great grace. We may look at it as a tangent, a rabbit trail in the midst of this trial. I think the Holy Spirit put it here so that you and I would be able to identify with him. We'd see a man of incredible pride and find it to be a place where he was humbled, wasn't he? If you think that you can stand, take heed lest you fall. Peter never would have thought that he would have been a coward. He never would have thought that he would have denied Jesus three times, especially to a little girl. That never would have been Peter. But he thought that he could stand. Peter, he was asked to pray. And what did he do? He fell asleep. Peter followed at a distance when he probably should have been right there. Not only that, but Peter warmed his hands at the enemy's fire when he should have been nowhere near that. I pray that we would learn from the lesson of Peter and be in a place where we aren't proud, but we're humble and we cling to God for his ability to keep us from sin. And I pray that the way that that would take place is largely through prayer, that we would be a people who pray. We'd learn from Peter and say, I don't want to fall like that. If Peter could have done it over again, he would have been on his knees in prayer, wanting to keep from falling. I pray that we would never follow Jesus from a distance. And for sure, we wouldn't warm our hands at the enemy's fire. Not being in a place where our fellowship is so much with the world that they have a bigger impact on us than we would ever have on them. May we be used in just an incredible way to be a light to the world and follow closely with Christ, and depend upon Christ, and walk humbly before him. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this account, Lord. Um, We recognize that, that you had an unfair trial, and yet you came to lay down your life for us.
You profess that you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High. You profess that you would die in three days, you would rise again. All that they accuse you of, Lord, is in fact the truth. You are the Messiah. You are the one who was promised from ages past to be the one that would take away the sins of the world. Just as it says in Isaiah, there would be one that would come to us, one that would be born to us, a child. And he'd be called Mighty God. There would be one that would be born of a virgin, and he would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. We see the fulfillment of all of that in you, the person of Christ, our Messiah, our King, our God, our Savior, our friend. And I pray, Lord, that we would just walk closely with you and humbly before you and depend upon you. And be in this world, but not of this world. Shine brightly and acting as salt to the earth. For the sake of the gospel and that you might be exalted. Lord, I recognize that there's people here that I don't know, and yet you know all about them. And I pray that it's on this morning that you bring them to salvation, showing them the evidence of your deity, the fact that you are God, the fact that you are the Messiah, the fact that you are the one that was prophesied of. And that today would be the day of salvation for them. That they would believe upon you and trust in you for their salvation. And spend eternity with you. For us as your people, Lord, may we respond now properly with just praises pouring forth from our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.